Hi, this is Dr. Siegfried Othmer, Chief Scientist at the EEG Institute, and you're listening to the NeuroNoodle Network Podcast. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jake Unkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share the knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Dr. Siegfried Othmer, Chief Scientist at the EEG Institute. But before we get to Dr. Othmer, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking and Interested Brain Hacker. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. They specialize in delicious gluten and dairy-free sweetbreads everyone will love. Skip, they ship all across the country. I like to hear that, Pete. You know it. So sign up for the newsletter now. Get 15% off your first order because we're all about gut health. Hey, ding, ding, ding. We have some new Patreon supporters to go along with uh, Outrageous Baking and Interested Brain Hacker. We'd like to welcome aboard Tor Talk and Sandhya M. Tor Talk wants more people to discover TTS listening to text and it can increase the efficiency and reduce stress. Or talk. Interesting. Interesting. Welcome aboard, guys. You're going to have fun with us. I promise. And some business, too. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. So if they can't hear us, we can't help them. Okay, let's get to the main topic. Dr. Offmer, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, happy to be here. How, how do you know uh, Jay Gunkelman? I know everybody knows Jay Gunkelman, but how do the two of you know each other? It's always the first question I ask. Yeah, it actually goes back to the 90s. Uh, and I don't know, I don't remember uh, how we met. Uh, probably at a Biofeedback Society of California conference, uh, maybe one of the major conferences, APB, and that may, we may even have met uh, before the uh, ISNR was uh, was created. I don't know, but uh, he, he worked at one of our offices in in Marin County. At well, at our Marin office in Marin, uh, you know, um, right. uh, to, during the neurofeedback, uh, and so we interacted for a number of years uh, more directly in, in in that regard. And then applied his trade, and we, we applied ours. But there was that uh, that time when we actually collaborated more closely. Jay, what's your take? I remember it as being one of the early versions of ISNR, either SNR or SSNR, one of the early ones, you know. And um, after that, I actually did a a lecture uh, in your course on neuroanatomy, neurophysiology uh, for for, uh, one of your courses. And then obviously uh, the sublet of a big, we had a large suite in Marin and the EG uh, folks had a, had a small uh, portion of that. And Julian Isaacs uh, ran that. And, and obviously, when, whenever he wasn't uh, doing a patient, uh, he would stop in and watch the EG streaming by and uh, point at a piece of the EG and say, what's that? So uh, I spent a fair amount of time explaining what that was um, uh, to Julian, you know, Lambda and various EEG waveforms that were, uh, uh, you know, different than just routine. And he would always ask, well, how do you know that? <laughs> so uh, I would point to Niedermeyer and he'd hand me the Niedermeyer book and I'd flip to the spot that explained the phenomenon that we were looking at. So I have the rattiest copy of Niedermeyer anybody's ever seen. It's dog-eared. 
the spine is broken in a number of spots from being flipped open so often. So most of the time, Niedermeyer is kind of a pristine book on a shelf. But um, as I say, my, my old version of it is, is kind of beat up. Uh, Julian is the one who invited me after my uh, brain tumor surgery and everything to do a talk. And uh, once, once I had done my first uh, presentation, um, it, it, it was all, all downhill from there. Um, I, uh, the, I, I've been doing lecture presentations about EEG ever since. Thank you, Siegfried, for uh, 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 kind of uh, being along uh, in the early days. Um, I, I, my lab goes back to the 70s, but um, uh, I had left uh, neurofeedback uh, for traditional EEG and uh, Siegfried's uh, group and everything kind of brought me back into the neurofeedback fold, uh, which is a good spot to be. Dr. Othmer, how, how did you uh, get started in the world of neuroscience, neurofeedback? I keep hearing stories in the 60s and 70s, but what got, what, what got you sucked into it? Well, actually, uh, the story does go back that far uh, because it also invo involves my wife. This has been a joint project. Um, so the, the key issue is that we had a, a son with behavioral uh, difficulties. This is the crux of the story, and uh, this really wraps it up. So uh, we were, you know, parents trying to struggle with a difficult kid, and the difficulties were getting greater and greater over time. And uh, eventually, uh, temporal lobe epilepsy was diagnosed, but that was many years in coming. So uh, meanwhile, we as parents had only the behavioral model to go on, right? Uh, Brian, you have to control your behavior. What do we have to do, Right. And he realized uh, more than we did that uh, he could not control his behavior. There were occasional violent episodes that were just out of the blue and whatever. And uh, it, uh, you know, this is understood uh, in, in the sciences, uh, but in the medical field by some people, uh, but uh, that didn't rattle down to us. So we were uh, totally mystified and eventually got thrown out of school. And in the third grade, imagine that, an eight-year-old uh, thrown out of school. And uh, the pediatrician, thankfully, suspected a neurological involvement and got him on meds and that improved. Uh, so first, that was the first time when, when Brian was kind of liberated from, from the burden that we had placed on him as parents, right? Uh, he said, okay, it's not me, it's my brain. That was that was very liberating. And then uh, it was sort of nine years of hell because life, you know, the, the medications did their bit, but uh, it was still not, uh, he was still not livable with. Uh, nine years later, we, uh, we heard about uh, the neurofeedback, which actually had been discovered right here in our neighborhood in Los Angeles uh, at the Sepulveda Veterans Administration Hospital. And uh, there was a practitioner in Beverly Hills, which was only six miles away from our house. We did a neurofeedback. And now that was the second stage of his liberation because he realized oh now there is something i can do to help myself and he just took, he just grabbed hold of that and and said this allows me to manage my my condition and it it was truly a liberation now that still didn't solve all the problems right but it was amazing how the 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 change he was uh, you know probably diagnosable as asperger's diagnosable as depressed diagnosable as bipolar he was, there were paranoid episodes. I mean, life was uh, rarely uh, is, is one uh, gifted with a child with, with so many difficulties. 
but a lot of that, uh, you know, came under control first with the meds and then again with uh, with the neurofeedback. And it turns out that my wife was studying at Cornell uh, first in physics, got a physics degree, and then uh, she um, uh, went into neurobiology. And her PhD uh, topic, her thesis topic, her dissertation topic was actually closely related to what Barry Sturman, the, the original researcher in this field, was doing almost at the same time in Los Angeles uh, at, uh, at the Sepulveda VA. And so it was uncanny. She was working with cats. She'd implanted cat, uh, you know, electrodes in the cats. And she was working uh, with a signal, uh, signal processor, uh, you know, uh, to uh, capture the data and get evoked potential. So the, the field of evoked potentials was only about two or three years old at the time, right? And she was right in it, looking at classical conditioning uh, of cat behavior using evoked potentials. And so she was uh, really, you know, uh, geared for this field, for entry into this field. But then it was Brian's medical difficulties that actually derailed her PhD. She was now at the Brain Research Institute at UCLA, uh, working under Ross Aidy, its director, and she just got to the point where I can't carry on. I mean, Brian needs my full attention. Uh, she had her own issues. And so she basically just uh, just had to stop. And, and so that uh, riveted us. You know, when we saw Brian's progress, we both looked at each other and says, okay, here's this lady with a master's degree in education or something, right? Trying to m- manage this technology. And Sue's sitting there thinking, you know, I, that's actually my field. So we, we were kind of... Uh, uh, you know, riveted by this, and so changed careers in order to pursue this. For a while, I stayed in aerospace because somebody had to make the money. We, we planned to go into this, and then that happened a few years later. I built uh, apparatus so first of all that brought the uh, the whole technique into the modern world, and and that that instrument was sold to thousands of clinicians, and that kind of kicked things off. We started professional training in 1990, and then more fully in 1993 with the start of the SSNR. And uh, and so that that was it. So we were we were in the early years uh, on this project. Can you give us just the time period with with Brian and what what when was that? The seventies, sixties? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he was born in sixty eight, and and okay. then, uh, there there was another another part of the story, which is that uh, he had a baby sister, and the baby sister had a brain tumor, and she died at fourteen months, and. Uh, that of course was very upsetting to uh, to to Brian, and uh, that helped to kind of uh, set set the rocks rolling down the hill. I, I'm sure. So there were both neurological influences, and then there were uh, you know what life uh, what life dishes out to you. So that happened in 1975, and uh, so that that was a crisis that helped set uh, set Brian on the on the downward path. To explain neurofeedback today, and for for parents to help get their kids some some treatment uh i can only imagine what it was like in the early 70s i mean you had to create the trainings yourself huh uh yeah but uh, you know we did have a working model and that wrapped uh, around what barry sturman was doing yeah. and uh and that uh, pretty much set the stage so the instrument that we developed really just simply computerized the uh, his lab instrument and uh, the, the method that was implemented on his lab instrument and so then, but then of course, innovation began, right? One, once we had uh, software, you know, it's, if you have analog devices, you can't, you can't tweak the variables, you know, you're kind of stuck. So, uh, but with software, you know, you've got latitude. 
And so that's when the innovation uh, really, really began uh, and our thinking began to shift. And now this is the, this is the critical part of the story because we're not there anymore. Uh, that, that is our, our conception of what's going on here has completely changed. Let's get into that conceptual shift. That sounds right. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so basically, the oper- the operative model uh, at that time was operant conditioning. Right. Uh, you're challenging the brain to to alter state because that that helped to promote a more regulated state. Very clear, very simple model proved out in cats and so forth. And uh, in- increasingly, we we began to appreciate the fact that the rapid results we were getting in, in the neurofeedback were not consistent with a, an operant conditioning model. Uh, things were happening too fast. Uh, and in fact, one of the uh, other leading lights in the field, Joel Lubar, basically just said categorically, well, you know, if things happen in less than 15 sessions, that's not operant conditioning. But we were getting single session effects, no, no, doubt, no doubt about it. In fact, when, when we ourselves first did the neurofeedback, uh, we were getting single session effects. Our, our son did, my wife did. Uh, I got uh, saw effects uh, in four sessions. Uh, none of that took a, took a great deal of time. So that had to be explained. Uh, and so what had happened is uh, the instrument was also showing the dynamics of, of the brain rhythms that we were using for the operant conditioning design. And so obviously the brain was lunching on the dynamics as well as on the targets that the targeted reward that we were offering, that we were offering the person, the trainee. And so what, what happened over time is that we, we realized we, we gave ever more, ever more credit to the, to the dynamics we were showing in, in, the, in the signal. And that got us to realize that there is an incredible specificity to, these, uh, to the re- brain's response to these frequencies. And so that gave rise to what we call the uh, uh, optimal response frequency model. And that took us away, that liberated us from the standard frequencies. And then, of course, uh, you know, we were finding the op- uh, optimal frequency, training frequency for every person. And then we noticed trends. The trends took us down to ever lower frequencies. This was the most challenging uh, people uh, that we were seeing. They tended to be at ever lower frequencies. So first we got down, you know, we kept changing the software to, uh, to keep up. Uh, then we trained in the theta band for heaven's sakes, which we usually inhibit and says, what are we doing here? And then we eventually, eventually ended up in the delta band. And we said, my God, this is what we inhibit. What are we doing here training it? But we were training a mechanism. We're training a, a mechanism which is organized at a specific frequency. And eventually we're bumping up against the lower range of the EEG band. We're down here at uh, 0.5 hertz, which is the usual cutoff of uh, EEG, you know, EEG band filters. And, uh, and so forth. And then we got a system that got us down to point one and people were piling up there like, like slow, snow drift against the fence. You know, they were, they were sort of piling up at the lowest frequency. And then we say, well, you know, what to do? We have to go lower. I said, well, what does that mean? What does that even mean training lower than 0.1 Hertz? Well, it turns out that opened up an entire, uh, entire new universe uh, to us. Uh, because we did ba- basically what nature directed us to do, which is train lower. I mean, whatever the heck that means. And, and so we got into this uh, infralow frequency region, the region of the slow cortical potential. And that opened up uh, a, a, whole, a whole universe f- uh, for us because uh, there is actually a whole universe of frequencies down there, right? Uh, 0.1, 0.01, 0.001, uh, millihertz, and on and on. It just goes down. Uh, 
And it turns out that in that range, again, the rules held, people responded at very specific frequencies uh, in, in that in that range. So this is very persuasive. And you get single session effects. People feel different, you know, within a matter of minutes uh, if they're symptomatic, right? If they have something to report, if they've got a headache that might go away in a few minutes or get worse, in which case we have to, you know, we're obviously not at the right frequency. For the last 16 years, we've been exploring this low frequency range. And it turns out, uh, you know, what what are we talking about here? It's, it, we're not looking at the neural dance anymore, right? We're, we're looking at what whatever the brain needs to do to organize the low frequency regime, which is the regime of the glia. So the, the glial, glial processes are, are low frequency. And it turns out they are essentially the governors of the neuronal system, right? Uh, it turns out that, you know, we, we, when, you, when you see a, neur a neuron picture and you see the synapse and you see, uh, you know, the receiving end and you see the, the sending end, it's, you, you basically see two elements in the picture, right? But there's always a third one in the mix, and that's the glia. The glia mix themselves in uh, there at the at every synapse, they play a role, right? So, and it's a supervisory role. It's a controlling role. When you're talking about training the control, the brain as a control system, uh, you, you want to go to the top of the hierarchy of controls. Well, in the case of the neurons, that's, that's the glia. And so it's the low frequencies that set the stage for, uh, for, for the neuronal dance. And so there we are. And that, that I think, has allowed us to say, that we're heading for a major revolution in mental health. There's just no question. And it has to do with uh, involving the low frequency range within, within the whole uh, neurofeedback uh, terrain. So Siegfried, your approach is obviously not operant. And that kind of flies in the face of Sturman's adamant statement that you know, what we're doing is operant conditioning or, you know, uh, uh, training. There has to be other explanations. And systems theory ends up being one of those uh, approaches. Systems theory basically says that if you have a system and you provide feedback to the system, it can then self-regulate and change states. And this is, I think, uh, something that explains the sudden change or the single session or, um, you know, it, there's no operant slow progression or, or gaining of a skill. Uh, it, it's it's a, a change in state and self-regulation. And I think the systems theory approach ends up helping explain uh, your findings. Um, and although it does challenge those that think this is all operant, uh, it's also an extremely well accepted uh, approach to uh, systems. So uh, I, I, I think what you're doing is uh, got a, a solid basis. It doesn't have to be operant. Uh, there, there may be some operant uh, aspects to some people's approaches, uh, but systems theory also uh, holds sway here. Uh, even when people are trying the old-fashioned uh, operant style, they still sometimes see uh, uh, single-session changes, uh, sudden changes, uh, changes kind of out of the blue, and those are not explained by the, the simple operant uh, approach. Uh, operant's easy to explain to people. Uh, systems theory is a little bit more challenging. 
you know, just because it's a little bit more challenging doesn't mean it's not still a good explanation. Yeah, well, uh, okay. But, uh, but you know, a lot of our audience is, um, is parents and, and, and so forth and, and, and people with uh, <laughs> the relevant issues uh, that they're concerned about. So, uh, so let me put that in, in other terms. The way we explain it uh, is, is, is as follows. You're, you're, you're right that we're talking about state shifts uh, in, that are macroscopic and readily observable in, in first sessions, not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, when we're not accomplishing healing in a session, you know, uh, uh, that it just uh, sets us on the path. In fact, these state shifts serve the purpose of our of the clinician finding the ORF and then the real work gets done at the ORF, right? Then, okay, so what, what's happening there? You, the brain is observing its own signal, uh, the signal that it has its, itself generated. So it's the brain engaging with self. It is seeing itself in action. And that is actually an action item for the brain. Uh, systems theory, uh, all well and good, but we've got a living entity here that makes a difference. It's the living entity engaging with, uh, with in all of its complexity with this uh, with this signal, and that is an action item for this uh, for the brain. It immediately, I mean, first of all, the brain has to detect the uh, the fact that that signal represents itself, right? And as soon as it does that, as soon as the brain has that recognition, oh, that signal is me. I'm doing that. Then, of course, the brain recruits that signal into its regulatory regime and utilizes that signal to improve its own self-regulatory competence uh, in the longer term. We talk about that in terms of skill learning. It's a skill learning model with self-regulation being the brain's core skill. And and so uh, the brain is doing what it does naturally. It's now learning self-regulation in the way that it learned self-regulation in the first place, right? By observing itself living life. Uh, That's, uh, you know, it has internal feedback loops, but it also monitors the external world and thus refines its regulatory skill. You know, obviously language learning happens that way, uh, but also, you know, affect regulation and so forth. It observes itself uh, in the flow of life and thus improves its self-regulatory function. And now we're adding, simply adding another feedback loop. The, the particular advantage of doing it this way is that we are operating at the level of subtlety at which good regulation necessarily has to take place. We're not interfering with the process. It's just we're letting the brain sit there with its own signal and, uh, and manage it. If if anybody's interested, I can I can show just how that process flows. I have some, you know, I can show you briefly. Let me share the screen here. So here's the, the brain looking at itself. And, uh, you know, that, that's what the brain does. The brain only knows about itself, right? As uh, Walter Freeman said, everything that the rabbit knows about the outside world, it makes up in its own brain. So the brain is, on, is always only engaged with itself. It's, it's only... Uh, oper- operating in the v- universe of neural- neuronal firing. So, so essentially, we're within that space. We're operating with, uh, within that mode where the brain is simply engaging with itself. And, and here's the process. This is the usual process. Here's the uh, trainee looking at the uh, feed- visual feedback. There's also auditory feedback and tactile feedback. Here's the amplifier. And uh, here's the clinician looking at the, at the data. Now, this turns out to be the drawing that's made by the engineer. 
and you notice uh, his main task was designing this amplifier. And you notice it's right in front, uh, in cent front and center. Uh, it's in the foreground here. Uh, this, this is obviously the engineer's drawing. In the real world, the clinician is paying more attention to the uh, 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 to the to the client. And so here we uh, here we are uh, in a in a realistic setting. So here's this kid looking at the train moving slowly because we're de dealing with low frequencies. Uh, this actually, he can, he can train even at this age for 10, 20 minutes. And here's the clinician watching the scene. And so uh, here, here, here's where we are. Now, let me show a little bit about the, the instrument itself. So here we're seeing uh, the, the feedback signal is obscured right now because we've got a crappy EEG. So this is not necessarily a good record. So here we have a decent EEG and we see the rocket going through the tunnel uh, when there's noise in the EEG, the tunnel goes dark. Uh, here we see a spectral display, much of which is obscured uh, behind here. Uh, so here we, here we see uh, the, the training ongoing. So the person is watching the, the rocket go through the tunnel. And the signal is now encoded in the speed of the rocket, right, which is uh, slowly changing. We're talking about very subtle effects that are actually beneath notice to the obser outside observer. But it, they, these subtle shifts are observable to the brain. And because, again, the brain is, is making that signal. So we're, we're dealing at a very subtle level. And here uh, we show all the inhibits, uh, well, all the, all the bands, uh, sep uh, the EEG bands separated into subbands, uh, which are, uh, this is part of our inhibit scheme. So this is the part that's conventional operant conditioning. So when uh, band amplitudes are, are exceeded, then we see the darkness entering the tunnel, obscuring uh, the rocket. And that's, a, uh, again, a cueing to the brain that it's, uh, you know, going, going off the reservation. That's kind of, uh, that's kind of the, the, the process. So that kind of illustrates the process. So the person is just sitting there, uh, you know, watching that signal and maybe engaging verbally with a client and uh, children in the adolescent age, uh, they may be watching movies in which the, in which case the signal is encoded in uh, the size of the screen. The child is oriented toward the movie and the brain is oriented toward what matters to it, which is the, the growing and shrinking uh, screen size uh, to which the person pays no attention, right? That just disappears. And, uh, and so everybody's happy. So basically, we just need to get the person out of the way uh, in order to, for the brain to do its job, right? The, the person plays no role uh, in the training except to allow it to happen and not interfere with it. Uh, so this is, this is truly brain training in its essence. And uh, we're, we're, we're kind of letting the brain take charge. Was that an infant you had? Like, like how old was that kid? That's great. Wow. I've never seen that before. Like right. what, what, what can you train? What symptoms? Well, uh, okay. In this case, uh, there, there was a situation where basically the, the, the kid was, uh, uh, wasn't having bowel movements regularly. So uh, this, every time we'd have a session, he'd have a bowel movement. It was uh, for minor issues. The kid is fine, right? Yeah. But that's, that's just the point. This this shouldn't just be looked at in a medical model. This should be looked at in an operant, uh, in an optimal functioning model. This can be done with uh, with young children, for example, with uh, drug impacted children. They're born, you know, dependent on cocaine, uh, and we can calm that nervous system uh, in, uh, instantly. We've had uh, kids, uh, you know, infants on the instrument uh, as uh, as early as three weeks, 
and and they're yeah. obviously responding. In other words, the the brain of of a three week old infant is capable of engaging with that signal, right? As soon as it recognizes that signal as representing itself, uh, then the process moves forward. the in, The interesting thing is that uh, the the infants actually pay attention to that signal, even though nothing particularly of interest to them infants probably probably engaged with things moving on the screen that kind of thing okay so they they actually do pay attention and of course the brain assures that they pay attention because once the brain is interested the the, the kid will be interested right they so we think that these infants are looking at the screen because the brain wants it that way right so the brain is in, is really in charge what do you train an infant for okay bowel movements what like what what do you oh, i'm fascinated uh, uh, yeah, colic, or if if they if they uh, uh, are not not ready to uh, engage with a mother, if they reject contact, you know that kind of thing. It's not like we have a lot of experience with infants. We've only trained a few, but we know it's possible. But the main the main application in our society, I think, is going to be drug impacted children. That uh, you know that uh, coming out drug dependent, and and then they don't want to give them cocaine. I understand that. But uh, we need to shift the state of the nervous system, and this is the way to do it. Can you talk about what's being trained to do that? So if you're training down the nervous system with someone, say, addicted to cocaine, born addicted, what's it what's look happening? like? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, Sorry, uh, okay. So the, the uh, nature favors us here. What, what, what happens in this process, as soon as we do, uh, as soon as we start this training, people calm down. They, they move to a lower arousal state unless we're, you know, wildly at the wrong frequency. And, you know, and we're, we're talking about very dysregulated people, you know, or, ordinary folks wiring up and doing this training. They're, they're not going to nothing dramatic is going to happen. But uh, we're, if we're talking about very symptomatic, uh, very dysre- highly dysregulated people, then we may not be able to predict readily what's going to happen when we start at a particular frequency. We then have to initiate a process of finding the right frequency. But in that process, if we're even close to being right, the, the consequence is for people to move to a lower arousal level. They move to a calmer state. So we're moving toward parasympathetic dominance. Uh, you know, it's, it's a relaxation training. It's the relaxation training par excellence. There are a lot of people who want to know what to do, how to do it. And, and they ask for instructions on what do I do to make this work? My answer to that is always, if I could tell you how to do this with words, talk therapy would work. Yeah. And then I wouldn't have to have an instrument. Right. So this is uh, uh, our method in particular reduces the process entirely, uh, almost entirely to an instrumental one. Now, the, the clinician role is by no means irrelevant because the key issue is the, the clinician has to decide two things. Am I at the right frequency and am I at the right protocol? And now, you know, let me just frame, frame the, uh, the big picture here. We're, we're moving to the bottom of the regulatory hierarchy of the nervous system, right? We're, 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 look, we're training core regulation. What is core regulation? It's, uh, it's where the nervous system hangs out in terms of arousal level, in terms of uh, parasympathetic uh, sympathetic dominance, and in terms of stability, you know, the, the prime responsibility for a uh, self-organizing system is to maintain its stability categorically, right? That's, that's the ground rule. That's uh, the prime directive. Uh, it turns out that those two requirements 
state regulation, where does the nervous system hang out, and nervous system stability drive us in two separate directions. The, uh, the calming of the nervous system drives us to lower frequencies, and the more, more uh, impacted people move to the uh, extreme low frequencies, frequencies that are hard to imagine. <laughs> St brain stability requires very specific frequencies that are all over the map. They can, they can be all over, uh, all over the EEG. They can be in the EEG range. That's where we discovered this. Uh, and they can be the infra, infra low frequency range. And there can be uh, a number of the, such frequencies where the brain can be trained towards stability. And now what, what has transpired is that brain stability uh, is principally a matter of the coordination of the two hemispheres. They live in the, each in their own universe to, to a large degree, but of course they have to collaborate. They have to, have to interact on everything, right? But they do have their individuality and so forth. So they have a, they have a rather daunting task and that easily goes, goes awry. So we find that the core issue in instabilities, what are we talking about here? We're talking about rage. We're talking about uh, migraines. We're talking about uh, well, rage is more complicated. The classic ones are seizures, migraines, panic attacks, uh, asthma attacks, that kind of thing. These sudden major excursions of state that fun that majorly diminish brain function, brain functional capacity, or constrain brain functional capacity. Those sudden, you know, paroxysmal in character, sort of burst-like in character, they appear suddenly and disappear suddenly. That kind of thing. Those are brain instabilities. And by and large, they involve the hemispheric uh, relationship. And so when we train the brain in, in its uh, hemisphere, hemispheric coordination, of course, we don't. We, we let the brain do it. We just give it information on what's going on at each hemisphere. These good things happen with regard to uh, instabilities. And it turns out the same, thing the same thing is done for all of them. Whether a person has asthma or migraines or panic attacks or whatever, uh, vertigo, the, the, same, the same technique is used. So uh, obviously there's a fundamental principle at work here. And then the uh, calming training, the arousal level training, uh, a very effective way of getting at that is right parietal placement. Uh, because first of all, the right hemisphere is, is, is in control of our core regulatory function. That's uh, the, the burden of the left is, is to control the EEG range. The burden of the right is to control the ILF range. So it's in charge of the glia and the glial system. And it's parietal, it's, uh, it's posterior, because the, the, the posterior hub actually is more important. <laughs> it's the most important part of the brain in this model of uh, you know, core regulation. You know the the front the, the frontal brain is more our view to the outside world, uh, the pater the paternal brain, if you will. The the posterior is uh, is more the the maternal, the uh, looking to our our safety and so forth. Uh, I mean this, these are oversimplifications, all of them, but but nevertheless, uh, we found our way to the right right parietal region, which is just magical for uh, arousal regulation. Uh, for all for anxiety and so forth, uh, we we also do right frontal for uh, for certain kinds of anxiety. So the, the the plot thickens after a while. But in terms of starting people off, there are these core issues: arousal regulation and brain stability, right? And that occupies us 
with with the most critical critically uh, dysregulated people that occupies us for quite some time because that that that's where things are messed up at the core issue now uh, we can talk also about who these people are but uh, let me see if you if i'm you know if this is understandable you brought up glial mental health revolution and we're we're about to be in one can could somebody talk to me and the moms and dads what 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 that means and what that's going to look like what is the rev- revolution uh, the the revolution is this we we now know that when when you confront your child in, its, in, in all its difficulties there is no way to predict what the potential of that nervous system for recovery is that the the child simply has to be given the opportunity to do neurofeedback we have no idea where where that might go best example is is our own son right uh he he was not livable with. I mean, he he was a horrible human being. He tortured our our younger younger son Kurt mercilessly for years, in 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 these altered states that uh, that were sort of uh, quasi uh, you know subclinical seizure activity. And and yet he turned out to be this wonderful human being. There's no way to tell uh, you know confronting your child's difficulties, what is possible with nerve with nerve feedback and everything else. We want to bring all the help to bear that we can. But but the, these tools are becoming available. But the heart of it is brain training. Is the brain rescuing itself? Is the brain having this this access to information which gives it its you know access to the self rescue remedy? And that's uh, we're seeing just amazing recoveries in in autism and so forth. The children become unrecognizable with respect to their their own their own past. So one child who is now in college was was asked uh would you would you be willing to you know give us a testimonial and uh, and he said no because i don't want anybody to know that that is who i was years ago i'm not going to bring that up right that is uh, that is in a deep dark past and i'm not going to talk about it I'm not going to tell you about it that's gone uh and and we understand that we had a mom coming to us showing uh, telling us about the progress of her autistic child and she, she said, okay, this is not to go out of this room. I'm showing you the videos. I have my son to worry about. He's going to grow up. I don't want him seeing himself on the internet as a four-year-old screeching at his little sister, right? I don't want that out there. So you have to keep this uh, inside this room. Uh, the, the point is that, uh, that huge change is possible uh, that, uh, that hasn't been before. In autism... 40% of the autism population have classical epileptiform discharges in the EEG without having seizures. And another 20% have paroxysms that just don't have a spike in them, but they're absolutely out of control EEG patterns. And we've seen those patterns dissolve with the neurofeedback. And autistic kids who weren't able to speak and couldn't even look people in the face Uh, end up coming off of the spectrum. And because you can't catch autism, we can't say we cured autism, but they've learned how to not be the way they were. And if you can stop the epileptiform discharges, the brain works a heck of a lot better without sudden electrical storms happening. Uh, We've seen uh, uh, stability uh, induced. But we also see some kids that are 
uh, amotivational, lack of initiation, under aroused, um, just not even interactive. And we've seen those kids uh, reactivated and re-engaged. Uh, the, the brain can be locked onto something, but it can also be locked off. So uh, it, it's astounding uh, to, to watch this process um, with, with kids who are all the way from epileptiform content uh, to under aroused, uh, amotivational uh, lumps. And uh, it, it, uh, both of those extremes uh, end up becoming an, a normal child. Uh, I, I have a, a series of uh, intractable epileptics that I've worked with, with, which were having hundreds of seizures a day, uh, uh, already medicated with three anticonvulsants, uh, lined up ready for brain surgery. And when the parents decided to try neurofeedback, uh, a couple of these cases, the doctors told them basically, if, if you do neurofeedback and don't do brain surgery, you're going to kill your child, which is a rather aggressive bedside manner, actually. Um, you know, the, the parents were adamant that they wanted to try neurofeedback before brain surgery cut out a piece of their temporal lobe. You got to understand that the brain surgery, you know, classical brain surgery where they snip off the first third or half of the temporal lobe. Uh, which is an older style surgery, only had a half a chance of a reduction in seizures at three years. At three years after the surgery, when you're actually looking to see what the impact was, only half of the people had a, a benefit. If you only have a half a chance, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine lining up for brain surgery. The newer techniques where they actually just go in and take out a small piece, not the first third or half, the success rate drops to about 30%. It's less invasive, it's less destructive. The success rate drops. What they're trying to do is cut out the seizure. The seizure is a network property. It's not a focus. People might have a spot that triggers the network, but you can't cut out the network. You know, you're, they're hoping to take out the trigger point, but that doesn't always happen. I have yeah. a whole series of EEGs where people have had a left temporal or a right temporal resection, and the other side is firing away, uh, still giving them seizures. It, you know, the first do no harm. Before I would line up for brain surgery for epilepsy, I would try to learn how to operate my brain using neurofeedback. Again, we have a series of six intractable epileptics with horrible uh, uh, uncontrolled seizures already lined up for brain surgery, which are now seizure-free, medication-free for multiple years. You know, it seems miraculous, but it's, it's just nature. The, the brain learns to regulate itself. It's astounding the amount of self-regulatory control that the brain can institute. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me pick up on that. Uh, uh, so the critical insight is that uh, seizure uh, activity is basically a network property. The, the question, you know, foci, foci exist, uh, you know, maybe you, maybe you can find them, maybe you can't, but there are places in the brain where, these stuff, where this uh, stuff gets uh, initiated. Okay, but then the question is, does it generalize? And that's, that's the network issue. Basically, the, you know, we're dealing here with a genetically mediated condition, perhaps that may be then exacerbated by brain injury. 
but uh, the genetic contribution is is hyperexcitability. So the, the the brain is too firing ready, right? Well, uh, you you handle that as best you can with pharm- pharmacology. But then there's also a network aspect of hyperexcitability because we when we tr- do our training without involving pharmacology, uh, we actually calm that down. So the the neural networks uh, and and these self-regulatory processes are also an influence on uh, a factor in hyperexcitability in in this probability of generalization of of, of the paroxysmal event into a into a seizure. Uh, so yes, we definitely have a role, and neurology doesn't know about this. This is this is really you know they're so insular because of course they're incapable of learning from anybody outside the field because we don't exist. You know that's that's just uh, that's just the way of academia. I can't even talk to these people. I think, uh, you know, Jay has found a way to talk to a few of them, but basically uh, the door is shut uh, as, a, as a general principle. So, so this whole field has emerged outside of academia because the government stopped funding this back in 85 uh, and uh, developed into a mature, uh, into a mature discipline. And of course, we're still only at the beginning. So this, this really does justify uh, my statement that we're looking for uh, toward a revolution in mental health. Uh, what I wanted to get get back to is who who are these people who are so intractable? Uh, not perhaps in terms of uh, seizure activity, but just in terms of mental health, the mental uni- uh, mental health universe. We are, of course, talking about the people who did not have a healthy start in life, right? And in particular, they did not have a healthy emotional start in life. Uh, so a lot a lot of these mental health issues are rooted in. Uh, in early childhood problems. This is now very well known. What isn't known is just how far this goes. Uh, we talk about adverse childhood events, you, you know, uh, uh, being lying at the core of a whole raft of relatively intractable mental health issues. But it's worse than that, because if a child is not in an absolutely positive upbringing, right? Uh, if he doesn't learn to love, which means He's not in a loving environment, right? Uh, you, you need to be loved in order to learn to love. If that is not the case, if they look working, you know, being raised in, in equivocal families that are not, not there for him and so forth, there's problem with the foot that that will carry through the rest of life. And now the, the nice thing is we can go back and rescue those people. The problem is rooted in these lower fre- in the organization of these lower frequencies that are organized early in life, right? during those years, right? The early task of the human brain in the first 18 months is affect regulation, l- learning how to live in this world. Uh, and that's, that's you know, you're, you're, you're teaching your autonomic nervous system, you're teaching the arousal system, and it's basically mediated through the affective relationship to the parent. And if that is equivocal, doesn't go well, the child play, pays at a terrible price health-wise, not only mental health, but also physical health. And that is the big story, because we now can take, regardless of that history, we can now go back at any age and fix that. We can, we can't, you know, the the, the years that are lost, uh, you know, we can't recover, but there is a price paid. But basically, we can give them a healthy life going forward. That derangement of the core networks, right? That orientation to threat, that orientation toward the lack of safety, uh, and so forth, that that is fixable. And you don't do it with talk therapy. You can't do it with, with talk therapy. 
Now, I think we're coming to the end of the hour, but I might just, if, if there's another moment, I can slip in here, that the way I think about this is the president and the Secret Service. The Secret Service keeps the president safe, and he has no say in that, right? So psychotherapy is like talking to the president uh, about the problems of the Secret Service, that it's being too protective and too, you know, threat-oriented and so forth and can't relax. Why are we talking to the Secret Service? Well, the Secret Service is not available for, for talking to. Uh, this is our neurology. Our, our neurology, if, if we're not brought up in a safe environment, our neurology is organized for threat. And, it, and that is costly for the entire rest of, uh, rest of life. And that the, the brain needs to climb down from that. And that cannot be done with talk therapy. That has to be done with, neuro, uh, with something like neurofeedback. Alan Shore's work about early life experience of the infant face-to-face with the parent ends up being very uh, important for understanding the development of the neurotransmitter system and uh, the, the attachment uh, that, that ends up going on. Uh, he's, he's done some very nice work on that with primary emotion as well as social emotion, uh, like shame and guilt uh, later in life. But um, uh, his writings in this area, I think, are foundational and well worth a read if, uh, if somebody's going to end up trying to understand the dysregulation that ends up happening due to poor initial uh, interactions. So, uh, Dr. Othmer, um, uh, you, you talked about the mid-80s is when the uh, government um, removed funding for, for neurofeedback in, in, in the research here. Um, and so we're talking about, you know, over 30, 40 years of trying to bring, you know, the phrase isn't bring it back, but get it more integrated into the mainstream. And so my question for you, you know, if there's a way that you can comment, like, what, what do we need to break through? Like, you know, you talk neurology is kind of deaf to uh, our cause here. Um, what, what do you think we need to, to bring it uh, more mainstream? So a wonderful question. So uh, as it happens here in Los Angeles, uh, we, uh, we're working with the Pritzker Foundation uh, to bring the neurofeedback uh, into agencies that are dealing with under, uh, underserved children, right? This is uh, foster care facilities. This, this is uh, a Department of Mental Health. This is the Violence Intervention Project. Uh, this is a pr- uh, program that works a seventh generation working with the Native Americans. There uh, at the moment, this has just just really started off in this past year, and already we're at 19 agencies uh, involved. And uh, there's another program Matt Fleischman started in Eugene, Oregon, once he retired from full neurofeedback practice to call it the Neurofeedback Advocacy Project, where he's trying to get this into agencies uh, in, the Arg- in, in, in Oregon, first of all, but they're also in Louisiana and elsewhere. So this is it, it, it's the it, it's the uh, strawberry model, you know. Right? You, you, the strawberry plant puts out runner, runners and then starts a new strawberry plant. So, uh, so it's going to go bottom up. This is not going to come in the front door. That's uh, you know, academia doesn't want to pay any attention to this uh, and so forth. No, it has to come up, come bottom up. And so we're dealing with the with the children where uh, people throw up their hands. I, d- I really don't know what to do with, the, with these kids, right? And they're violent kids and so forth. And these are the attachment disorder children, right? Uh, drug impacted and whatever. Uh, this is exactly where we need to be 
But in our professional lives, we, we couldn't serve those people because we were in, in private pay situations, right? We, we had to make a living uh, with private pay uh, patients. And, and so we, we never reached these people. Uh, and now there we are. So this is uh, within a year or so, we're going to have enough numbers uh, in the database from these projects uh, that uh, p- program managers uh, will will pay attention to. We'll, we'll simply not be able to ignore because the data are coming in quite solid. And uh, and once that happens, once people are looking at reduction in major reduction in resort to m- medical care and emergency room care and so forth, and uh, the demand for services m- goes down. Once once people see that, uh, this this is going to take off. And it'll uh, then I think we're going to have something like a phase transition that all of a sudden people will go, well, I knew it all the time, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's just that, you know, well, I just wanted to see some research published and uh, blah, blah, blah. There'll, there'll be a phase transition where somebody, you know, lots of people will suddenly want to be on the right side of history. It says, where, you, where have you been for the last 40 years? Darn it. Um, you know, we can't even talk to, I can't talk to anybody at UCLA. The door just slams shut, right? They, they can't talk to it. That's the way with academia. So it's going to have to come bottom up. And, and that's what's now happening with the aid of the Pritzker Foundation, which is funding the early insertion into, uh, into these agencies uh, to the point where it can then take off. Uh, once, w- once the state realizes how much money this is saving them, you know, uh, even bureaucrats will realize we just got to do this. Dr. Othmer, oh man, I w- awesome to have you on. F- thank you so much. Well, happy to be here. We can do it again. Oh, we, oh, oh, we are. Look for the invite. What's the best way for people to learn more about you? Is it eeginfo.com? Uh, yes, that's where the research is. Uh, and there's a YouTube channel. And we'd even get to the Brian Othmer Foundation. Uh, yeah, you well, that's that's our that's our nonprofit, which uh, co- collaborates with the Pritzker Foundation. Yeah, uh, yeah, we can talk about that next time. Oh, th- thank you so much, Doctor. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. Again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking and Interested Brain Hacker. We are really about the gut health. Visit outrageousbaking.com. Gluten free, everyone loves. Plus, our new Patreon supporters, Tortok and Sanda Meta. Tortoks want more people to discover TTS listening. The text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. Everything will be in the podcast notes. Do you have an idea for a topic? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And hey, if you really, really like us, like Interested Brain Hacker, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon people. Cue the music. Cue the music.